Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Dr. Brady Brewer, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics. And joining me today are members of Purdue's Farm Transition Team. We have Dr. Maria Marshall, who is the director of the Purdue Institute for Family Business, and Renee Wyatt, a farm business management specialist here in the Department of Agricultural Economics and Dr. Julia Valiant of Indiana University down in Bloomington. Um, and she is a research scientist with the Ostrom Workshop. Uh, today's podcast is a, another episode in our Farm Succession series. And the topic of today's episode is transferring the farm to a non-family member. So Julia, you are new to this uh, uh, podcast. I wanna give a, a brief moment for you to introduce yourself and also to remind the listeners that sometimes Purdue and Indiana University do uh, work together, even though we are rivals on most of the, the sporting fields. Um, we do do a lot of great collaboration. So um, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, good morning. And thank you so much for having me on today. And Brady, it's really nice to meet you. I remember being at the Ag Lenders workshop three years ago when you were first introduced as a brand new professor at Purdue. And so it's great to be a guest on your podcast today and get to talk to Maria and Renee, who, yes, have been advisors of ours and partners of ours in our research projects over the past five or six years. So it's nice to be all together with you here. Well, we are glad to have you on. Um, so as I said, uh, today's episode is going to be on transferring the farm to uh, a non-family member, which is a, a little bit of a departure from what we've seen uh, in some of the rest of our farm succession planning series, because we've really focused on keeping it in the family. I, I know that phrase has been uttered a lot. So today we're going to focus on transferring the farm to someone who isn't a relative. Now, Julia, I, I want to turn back to you. You've done um, some research on uh, farmers finding uh, non-family uh, transfers. Would you like to look, tell us a little bit about the research you've done in this area? Yeah, sure. So we have been focusing more and more on farms that have no one in the family to take them over. and what that looks like to farm owners and ranch owners. We focused our, our research mainly on the Midwest and Plains in the United States. Um, and so we're looking at that landowner side of the coin. And we're also learning from entering farmers and ranchers who are looking for opportunities, who are looking for access to land. And specifically, we're learning from programs and policies that seek to link these types of parties up. Um, so some farm owner who's expecting some type of transfer out of the family, you know, whether that's transfer of the operation of the farm or the farm business or ownership of the land or some of these in combination or and more often only some of them. Um, and so we started out a few years ago learning from service providers that aim to facilitate these types of transfers, either through succession planning or farm linking or land linking. And through that research, we learned about policies that both the federal government has and that several state governments now have to actually incentivize landowners to pay landowners 
who choose as the next operator or the next owner of their farmer ranch, someone who qualifies as a beginning farmer rancher or a young farmer or rancher, or in the case of the federal program, the socially disadvantaged category of farmers and ranchers. Um, and some of these require people to be unrelated. Um, some of them don't require people who participate in them to be unrelated or not directly related. But even so, um, agreements between non-relatives are actually really common. According to some USDA data, um, land is most often accessed through a non-relative, through purchase from or rental from a non-relative. So we've been exploring these dynamics and learning from the service providers and policies that aim to help them out. So I, I want to clarify a little bit. So you mentioned these farm link programs um, at the federal level or other levels. So these are programs that if you're a farmer and you don't have an heir to uh, continue the farm with, or maybe there's other reasons that you don't want to continue the farm in the family. Uh, they help you link, hence the name, with someone that's not a relative. Yeah, exactly. Okay. If you, right, if your successor is not obvious to you in your family, and for whatever combination of reasons, you're looking to meet someone who could be your, who could become your transferee, either of the business or of ownership, then yeah, these FarmLink services aim to provide a space where people can meet each other, where people who are looking for land can meet up with people who are looking for a particular future for their land that they or, and for their farm business that they don't find in their family. And they're no. most often run, in our region, they're most often run by um, NGOs or nonprofit organizations. Some of them are out of um, land-grant extension universities. Some of them are run by farm bureaus. Um, most often, though, they're run by a nonprofit. So it sounds like there's a multitude of places where people can go and, and find some of these programs uh, to, to help find a successor to the farm. It's one option, yeah. So Renee, I, I, I wanna to turn to you real quick. You've also done some research on transferring the farm uh, outside the family. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in 2019, um, Maria and I did um, a survey of small business owners in the US and we asked them what they expect to happen when they transfer the business. And we found that about 18% expect to transfer that business to someone outside of the family. Now this, this very closely matches up with a survey that Maria and some of her colleagues did in 2012 of just farm businesses in the Midwest. And when we asked, um, how do you expect your business to be distributed to the next generation? 15% of those respondents said that they think that they would sell that to someone outside of the family. So we find that these small business owners and these family business owners, these farm business owners respond um, very similarly to that question. So first off, I'll, I'll just say, speaking personally, that, that number sounds pretty high to myself. I didn't expect it to be that high. So there are a large number of farmers that don't, uh, the, the, the objective may not be to keep the farm within a, in the family per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, and there's a lot of farmers. I mean, I would say that a lot, an overwhelming amount of farmers want to keep that business in the family. They wanna pass their farm down. There's somewhat of a legacy 
that goes along with that farm. There's a lot of pride that comes with, you know, owning a family farm for years and years and generations after generations. But sometimes it just doesn't work out. Sometimes people don't have nieces or nephews or, or kids who want the business. Sometimes there's no one there in the family that wants the business. Um, but we've heard in the succession planning team, you know, working with families, there's a lot of people that come to us and say, you know, we've, we don't have our kids, our kids are interested, you know, they're off the farm, they don't want it. Um, but we have an amazing farm hand and we're trying to figure out how we work out the financing to bring that person in. We know that person would be a great steward of the land. They would continue our business the way we want, you know, they're, they're exceptional at running the business. You know, we want to, we want to bless them with the farm and how do we go about doing that? So we, so we do hear of those scenarios, even though you don't, you don't hear about them as much as just giving it to the family. Yeah, and uh, I think to Julia's point in the program, those these farm linkages programs, sometimes it's really hard to find a successor. I know uh, the Center for Commercial Agriculture runs an internship program that allows college students to go and work on, on a particular farm. And, and some of those farmers that have uh, hired our Purdue interns, uh, really the purpose is, is they're looking for a successor um, in, in a couple of those instances. And, and they've yet to be able to find it. So I think all anecdotal evidence supports all the research you guys have done. So I want to transition now to thinking about, okay, so we obviously have a large portion of farmers out there that are looking to transfer, transfer the farm to someone who isn't a relative. So I, I want to highlight maybe some of the, the differences between uh, the farm transfer to a relative and the farm transfer to a non-relative. Um, and how it may differ, or in some cases, how, how it doesn't differ. Um, so Maria, I wanna to turn to you now. Uh, how, let's focus a little bit on the, the uh, con controlling aspect of the farm. Is, is there much difference if, if you're a farm owner and you're transferring it to someone who isn't a relative? Um, you know, we, we've gone through a lot of topics on the farm succession series, thinking about keeping control of the farm, thinking about uh, keeping revenue sources from the farm. Are there any major differences between a family transfer and a non-family transfer? Not really, and that might be surprising just because um, as I tell every farm family, the sky's the limit of how you wanna set this up. Well, it's the same with a non-family non owner, right? It's how do you envision this process? And so you might be transferring the business entity and not necessarily the land. You see that a lot in family transfers, right? The, the land is in a trust that belongs to the family, but the business entity, that LLC that's running and operating the farm might be transferred over, right? That's, that's where the succession is taking place and the land is kind of separate from that operating. It can be the same with a non-family owner. You might be leasing the operation of the land of the business right so the business entity in itself even though the land is still in a trust or is in a different kind of configuration and so you may have there are a lot as you already know a lot of people that are farming just rented land right they're still farming they're running a farm business so that's where we're always talking about so are you just talking about transferring the land or are you talking about succession planning and transferring a business Right. And so those are the those are the things that any incumbent needs to think about. Is it the business operation with and without the land and what you know, because we have a lot of land that is rented. Right. So this whole 
this whole process is being conflated by the amount of land that's rented. And so you have a lot of landowners, a lot of widows that have a lot of land that they're leasing to other farmers. And uh, at some point they even have to decide, do they, do they transfer that over to the farmer that's currently farming that rented land or a brand new farmer that might be beginning, a beginning farmer, right? So they're still farming, but where do they decide that they're going to do that transition? What values, right? A lot of this also comes back to the values that that incumbent has and what are they trying to, you know, what are they really trying to enhance in that process? Now, you, you mentioned that this key distinction between transferring the operating business and transferring the land. Um, the first question that comes to my mind is, so let's say I'm a new and beginning farmer. I've connected with you, Maria. You're a land, you're, you're a former farmer or getting ready to retire. How do I know that, uh, yes, you can transfer the farm business to me, but that the relatives that are keeping control, the trust or whoever the, the heirs that do get the land, um, I want some longevity there. How do you work through that? I, I want to make sure that, okay, yes, I'm, I'm going to be renting the land. I'm not going to own it. That went to nieces and nephews or kids. But how do I know that they can't just take the land out from underneath me? Is there a safety net there? Or is that something I need to be worried about? Um, I think that's where a lawyer comes in. But yeah, so there can be long-term leases, right? So that you would have contract, just like you would have, you can have a short-term contract or a long-term contract. Um, in a way, you can think about it, it's a real estate lease. Now, now I'm probably getting way ahead of myself. Remember, I'm an economist, not a lawyer or a real estate agent, but there are, you know, buildings that you can lease for 99 years, right? So um, not that maybe you'd be leasing the land for 99 years, although I guess you could, but I, I think that's where, you know, I, I go back to what do you envision and how, what works for both parties, uh, that would work well. So it might be that for that family, they want to be landowners, but not necessarily farmers, but they want that land to continue in agriculture. And they really trust this other family, let's say that's been side by side with them all these years, and they go into a 20 year leasing agreement or a 10 year leasing agreement or a year by year and it's on a handshake, right? We don't, we want, we don't want it to be a handshake. That's where you're not going to have uncertainty and where a lot of these agreements have been passed on from to incumbent generations, they need that part of that succession process is bringing those next generations in to talk about what are what do we want to do and how do we work together to make that work, right? So that is part of that succession process that might be slightly different from when you're transferring inside the family where it's just the one entity versus maybe two or three. So Renee, uh, on some previous episodes, we, re we really highlighted the communication aspect of the farm succession. Um, how might communication between the parties be different or, or the same when it's between non-relatives? Yeah, so um, in some ways, it might be a little bit easier to communicate with non-relatives. I mean, you don't have those years of, you know, family issues or different dynamics that have always been around, you know, it might be a little bit easier to communicate. And when you're communicating with a non-relative, I think it's um, more normal or it seems a little bit more normal to say, hey, let's draw up a contract. Let's get this in writing. Let's hash these things out versus being in a family where you're just assuming that the land is transferred or just assuming that the business will be transferred to these people. You know, you don't have it written down. You haven't hashed out all of the details. But when you're entering into a contract and an actual sale to a non-relative, it seems a lot more valuable to sit down and hash those things out and a lot more natural. So it might be, it might be easier in that respect. So 
sometimes it is easier when you don't have to uh, worry about the family aspect of making someone mad or or maintaining having to maintain that relationship through uh, of, of the family, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like one of the keys here is finding the uh, the non-relative to take it over. Um, we spent a good portion of this at, at the beginning. So Julie, I want to come back to you here. You mentioned the FarmLink programs. Um, can I, can I ask, do these link programs uh, help with some of the aspects that Maria and Renee have been talking about in terms of working through, through the actual transfer, or is their main purpose really just to find that connection and then you'll have to work through it with uh, that non-relative uh, on your own terms? Typically, these service providers who are offering a farm link or land link meetup, meetup um, platform um, are offering it as one of several types of services that they offer. So normally, if you do find someone there, then they also offer facilitation services or succession planning services, or there's a whole suite of services that can go with it. So you're not really having to just muddle through on your own unassisted. And then some of the linking programs are quite structured where you know, someone's matching you up with different candidates who seem like a good fit for you and curating visits and conversations and the whole progression of the conversation. That's less common, but wow, people sure have an appreciation for it when, when that is offered. And um, the AgLink program of the Beginning Farm Center at Iowa State University is is best known for that, offering that level of service. Um, and that's something that we're really interested in looking into in our next study over the next few years is, you know, specifically with these policies that pay a landowner money for choosing a non-relative beginning farmer as their successor or transferee. So they have they they offer that money, and then what happens? Like what is what might the landowner do differently? How might the landowner go about the process of meeting up with potential successors differently? And how might the land seekers go about what they're doing differently when there's this offer of money on the table in the form of a state tax credit that's refundable and then often is uncapped and so can be many thousands of dollars potentially. Um, so we're interested in finding out, okay, so when you find someone, then what happens? Or when you have the offer of the incentive, um, then what happens? How does it kind of change the landscape of people figuring out their succession plans and the whole like cast of characters who are going to take part in those succession conversations? So uh, just a, as a clarification question, this money that's being offered, is, is this money meant to facilitate the, the transfer or is it more to help the, the new and beginning farmer get established, like it's money to help go buy equipment? What is this money intended for? It is intended to help convince a landowner to choose as their, um, next operator or next op or owner of their business or land, someone who qualifies as a beginning farmer or rancher, as opposed to someone who's already an established 
you know, maybe known, maybe big farmer or rancher. So um, instead of choosing like the most, the biggest farmer in the neighborhood as the person who you're gonna transfer to, which seems like is what happens in most cases, you know, for good reason, people who are already established have a competitive advantage in bids for land and in conversations around opportunities. So the money is there to help the landowner instead consider other candidates who might be the underdogs, who might be the beginning entering farmers who are looking for an opportunity. Yeah, so this is a common problem I hear a lot in agriculture and, and in the US, it shows up in the, the statistics as well, right? Every year that the USDA releases their data, the, the average farmer age gets older and older. Um, there is, especially with the cost of capital, there's large barriers to entry into agriculture because land is expensive um, and it represents a large portion of a farmer's balance sheet. Uh, so I think really from an advice standpoint, uh, if, if you're someone who's seeking a uh, non-relative to transfer it to. This is a program you need to be looking into because there could be financial incentive. And then also if you're a uh, younger uh, farm operator or someone looking to become a young farm operator, uh, this is something that you may use as an incentive if, if you are able to connect with someone who's looking to retire because there could be financial incentive for them to give it to you instead of someone else. Um, and when I say give give it to you, that's a broad range of, op, as Maria said earlier, from the land itself to just the farm business. Um, it could provide them incentive to, to choose you as the successor. Yeah, indeed. We were just interviewing um, the leaders of Iowa's um, incentive program last week, and they were saying, yeah, what they see happening in their state is that you know, land seekers, entering farmers, beginning farmers will often put it on their resume that they qualify for this tax credit program. So if you choose to lease to them or crop share with them or, you know, undergo whatever type of agreement with them, then you can get that tax credit in exchange for working with them. Or people, and we've also heard stories from the people who lead the policy in Nebraska um, that sometimes landowners are even offer, able to offer a slightly lower rental rate because they know they'll be um, getting some revenue from the tax credit as well. So anyway, there's all, all these ripple effects and we're excited to get to learn more about what those are. Yeah, now, is there any requirements uh, to qualify for some of these programs, Julie? I, I know if you're a... Uh, young farmer, you know, FSA, there's years requirements of how many years you can be farming. Um, it, what, are the, what are the general requirements? I realize that every program could be different, but is there a broad range of you've been farming less than five years or have less than five years experience to, to know if you should go and, and look into these programs? Good question. Um, the requirements vary from state to state. Um, most of them require 10 years or fewer of experience, but some of them have no duration of experience stipulated. Um, some of them have a cap on what your net worth can be. And the, the requirements kind of tend to turn on those two factors, like how long have you been farming and what's your net worth? Um, both the federal program and the state programs.
So Maria, I want to come back to you um, and think about uh, you know the revenue and income from a land. So if I'm a, a farm owner and I want to keep uh, income coming from the operation I built or the land that I own, is this still possible to do in the scenario where you uh, have a non-relative as, as in the succession plan? Yes. So if you think of the roadmap that we've talked about before with um, same family successors, that roadmap to succession is not usually one to, right, even if you're selling outright, that's still a three-year process, but usually a succession where you actually are bringing in a successor, a successor, right, and you're the incumbent, that's usually a five, 10, 15-year process. So they're, you know, they can buy you out just like your, you know, son or daughter or niece or nephew would be buying you out over time. And you're thinking of that timeline, so could a non-family successor. So if you're thinking of that as, well, I need this to retire, so I need some income to still be coming in, that non-family successor can be in line for that longer period, just as a family successor would. And you can still get that revenue. But what about the control? Um, is it common for uh, farm owners to maintain some sort of control over the farm while they're in that 10, 15 year period. Uh, I know in previous podcasts, we've talked about, you know, uh, how decisions are going to be made between the younger generation and the older generation. And sometimes it's joint. Um, can you still have the same type of setup where you have a, a joint decisions with the uh, non-family uh, successor, or is it more of a severed, uh, you're, you're giving it over all at once? No, you could still have control, right? If it works for both parties. Because if we're talking about a succession process, they're a successor. There's still professional development that you're doing. There's transferring, just like on that roadmap, who's going to make the decisions at some point. It starts to be from unequal to equal to then unequal again, as that incumbent becomes, right, maybe just a consultant at some point and, and actually does retire and that successor comes in. So there's a difference between a non-family successor or you're just selling your land, right? So those are two different processes. So if you're thinking of somebody who's gonna be your successor, that can still, that's usually still a 10 year process. You're bringing them in. If you're thinking I'm ready to retire in one year and I'm going to sell my business, that's a very different process. So it sounds like with, with most things that we've come uh, to agreement on, on on the farm succession series. Everything is different and it's it's good to have a plan, uh, communicate well, and then sometimes seek outside resources, whether that be programs that help you with transferring to a non-relative or an accountant or a lawyer that helps the process actually go, uh, go uh, get the process done with and, and through to the finish line. So with that, I just want to remind all of our listeners, for more economic information, please visit us at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag, or you can visit the Purdue Institute for Family Business website at purdue.edu slash agecon slash fambiz, and that is F-A-M-B-I-Z. Or you can go to the Indiana University website by searching sustainable food science food system science, and then search for farm transfer. Uh, you can also visit us on social media at, on Twitter at Purdue FamBiz is the Purdue Institute for Family Business. Uh, the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's Twitter is at PU Commercial Ag. Um, and also as a reminder, uh, you can watch uh, farm succession videos on YouTube. 
by searching the Purdue Institute for Family Business um, on YouTube as well. On behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, the Purdue Institute for Family Business, and the Farm Transition Team, I am Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you.